actually enjoy hearing the sound of rain on the roof uh, with these the wood roof that we have here at the church. It uh, brings back good memories of either being in a cabin and listening to it rain, so don't fall asleep out there, you know. And, or uh, um, I, uh, coming from a farm background, I'm one of those guys who actually enjoys rain a lot. And I don't feel like rainy days are bad days, you know. I kind of like that mix because on the farm it meant that you could go to town, you could run some errands, you could take a nap, you could do some other things that you couldn't do uh, working outside. So I have, I have good connections with rainy days on that. Yeah, But I want to read this passage of Scripture for you from Luke chapter 8 that we're going to look at this morning. So uh, chapter 8, beginning at verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me. I know that power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to look at this section that illustrates the power of Jesus and the miracles he performed, may we too stand in awe of who you are and of who Jesus is. And Jesus, I thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, that you are still that miracle-working Savior. In your name we pray, amen. In Pastor Kent Hughes' commentary on Luke, he tells a story of God's providence that is really quite an amazing example. I want to share it with you this morning. On a Tuesday morning, he brought his wife in for what was going to be a routine surgical procedure. And uh, he brought her into the hospital, and then he sat in the waiting room with his daughter as they were waiting to hear the report on how the surgery had gone. And... uh, You know, as they were in that waiting room, 
a woman stopped by. Her name was Susie, who just happened to come that morning. She didn't know that Barbara was having surgery. Uh, this woman was a friend of Barbara's niece, and she worked in the hospital, but she didn't usually come down to that area. And she just happened to be there that morning and asked what was going on and found out about Barbara's surgery, and she said that she would stop by tomorrow just to see how she was doing. Well, at 10 a.m., the surgeon came out, and he said the surgery went well, your wife's going to be in recovery for about an hour and a half, and then you'll be able to see her. So Pastor Kent thought, well, here's the time I can go run a couple errands, do a couple things I need to do, and then I'll come back. And when he came back, the look on his daughter's face told him that something had gone wrong. And his daughter said that the surgeon had come out, that they uh, had not been able to stop the bleeding yet, and that his wife was back in surgery. And it would probably be 15 minutes. Well, 15 minutes turned into five hours. And they couldn't stop the bleeding. An artery had been nicked in the surgery, and they were continuing to put compresses on that and to try to treat this. And this began a very long night. Pastor Kent called his church. He was the pastor at that time at College Church in Wheaton, and he called on uh, the staff to pray, and they prayed. Some came over to talk with them, and her uh, condition continued to decline. Her hemoglobin, which was 14 when she began surgery, hit 4.9. She was without almost two-thirds of her body's blood. Her heart was racing at about 140 beats a minute in an attempt to keep what little blood she had circulating. A hematologist was called in, also a kidney specialist, and they were all looking and wondering and working on her and trying to stop this bleeding. Well, at that time, this friend, Susie, happened to come back, and she could sense that she had walked in on a crisis in the family and felt like she shouldn't be there. But she talked to Kent, and then she overheard someone say this, that we need to encourage her. She thinks she's going to die. It's something about the blood, not clotting. And at that moment, Susie suddenly remembered doing a blood test years ago on Barbara's niece. And she showed the results to a hematologist who then warned that niece that if she was ever in a traumatic accident like a car accident, she could bleed to death because of a rare blood disorder that she had. So Susie went back to the lab, pulled up this niece's pathology report, and then looked at Barbara's pathology report and saw the same condition. And she let the doctor know, and the doctor called the hematologist with the remedy, cryoprecipitate. And as soon as the cure began to be administered, the hemorrhage began to slow down. Later that day, Susie stopped by to see Barbara in ICU, and when Barbara saw her, she mumbled to the nurse. She said, do you know who this is? This is the girl that saved my life. Do you know what happened? And the nurse said, yeah, something about somebody accidentally stumbling across something. And she said, accidentally? Not at all. Not at all. God in his providence had brought Susie by at just the right time. And when we talk about God's providence, we are referring to God's sovereign arrangement of all of life. 
that God is the Lord of life. He is watching over us at all times. Jesus would teach that principle to his disciples. And when he sent out the 12 in their first ministry, as they went out two by two, he told them not to worry about their food, not to worry about what they would say God would provide. And he said this, he said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground except by the will of the Father. The hairs of our head are numbered. Those are amazing statements from Jesus talking about the specificness, the detail of God's sovereignty over our life. And the story we're going to look to in Luke this morning uh, joins together two miracles. It's interesting that Matthew and Mark do the same. They weave together these two stories because that's the way it happened. And they are telling us about Jesus' encounter in this situation. These two miracles are an illustration of God's providence and also of Jesus' power over sickness and death. Jesus is the Lord of life. But what we see when we look at this passage is we see two hopeless situations. There are two women, one younger, one older. One of the things that is in common is this number 12. One is 12 years old, the other has been suffering for 12 years, the same amount of time as this other young girl has been alive. Jesus and the disciples have returned from the Decapolis, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and they've come back to where his primary ministry was, and uh, presumably they are now in that area of Capernaum. And Jairus, the synagogue ruler in Capernaum, comes out to meet Jesus, and he is desperate. And he falls at Jesus' feet and he begs him to come and see his 12-year-old daughter who is dying. And Luke adds that she is his only daughter. And that age 12 is significant. It is when in that culture and time period when a young girl was coming of age and could be betrothed. And that arrangement could be made in those early teen years just like it was with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And as Jesus made his way to go with Jairus, he's there at the shoreline, you can imagine, and this crowd, huge crowds of people have come, and they're trying to make their way through this crowd. And it's said that Jesus was almost crushed by the people that surrounded him, everybody wanting to see him, everybody wanting to come up to him. This woman came who had been sick for 12 years, and she came up and she touched him. She too was desperate. She suffered from some type of bleeding. We don't know exactly what her condition was, but it tells us that no one had been able to heal her. Mark adds that she had spent all she had on medical care. You know, the high cost of medical care is not just something that we deal with. Even back then, here was a woman who was desperate to be healed and spent all that she had, and instead of getting better, she had gotten worse. 
Not only was it expensive for her, her medical care, but her condition meant that she wouldn't be able to participate in worship with the community. She would be considered unclean. And according to Leviticus 15 and the things that were happening in her life, um, everything that she sat on would be unclean. Everyone that touched her would be unclean. Uh, People would avoid her if they wanted to participate in worship in the community setting. And even her own husband may have divorced her because of this condition. We don't know. But in both of these situations, all human resources have been exhausted. And they have come to Jesus for help. You know, there are times when we are desperate too. And sometimes the crisis is medical. Sometimes it is financial. Sometimes it is relational, a marriage, or concern with our children. And we come to Jesus. We have no place else to go. The last five years of my dad's life, he was battling some different conditions. One, he had a cyst that had been on a kidney and he needed surgery to remove that. And then later it was discovered he had cancer. And I remember my mom telling me that she in her devotional time had come to this passage about this woman who had suffered for 12 years and been healed by Jesus. And she in her prayer time said to Jesus, Jesus, if you can heal this woman, you can heal my husband. And my dad, in that time, as he was battling with cancer, would be able to farm a couple more years and live during that time, but eventually he died from his cancer. We don't know what the outcome may be when we pray. We pray, thy will be done. And we ask for God's grace, and we ask for a miracle, and sometimes it is that extension of time that he gives us before that ultimate healing comes. Sometimes those crises are financial. When we were in seminary, uh, Gail and I had several individuals who continued to support us. We had been on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ before we went to seminary, And some of those individuals continued to support us monthly. And we had about $1,000 a month to live on, family of four. Uh, We had sold a home in Massachusetts where we had been living. And we used all of that money from the sale of the home to pay for our seminary education. We didn't have any debt, but we didn't have any reserves either. And here we were living literally below the poverty line on $1,000 a month trying to make things work. Well, one Sunday, it was in February, uh, we were attending a church in the area, and someone came up to me and gave me an envelope that morning. And I put it in my pocket, and when we got home and I opened it, there was a check for $300. This person had never done it before, didn't do it after. It was the only time it happened at that church. But that Sunday morning, they gave me this check. And what happened was that month in February, our support that was normally $1,000 was $700 that month. I don't know what happened, but it was the very amount that we needed to get by. And God and his providence had provided just what was needed. And he will provide for you and for me in our times when we are desperate, if we will look to him and trust him. And he wants us to bring those concerns to him because he is an awesome God 
who loves us and cares for us. And what we see in this situation then with Jesus are two calls for faith. Here are these two hopeless situations, and in each one, Jesus calls for faith just like he does with us. He wants us to trust him with our needs. And so in verses 44 to 50, we read about this woman in the crowd who came up and touched the edge of Jesus' cloak. The word that's used there for the edge would be referring to the tassel on a cloak. And it probably wasn't that she, you know, was kind of trying to reach down and catch the edge of his garment by his feet. It was more likely that that cloak was thrown over his shoulder, and on the edge of that cloak would be these tassels. And she had reached out, and she had just touched that, thinking, if I just can touch him, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped. And Jesus stops. And he says, who touched me? And he turns around and he's looking in the crowd. Who touched me? Jesus knew that power had gone out from him. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, he had less power now. It doesn't mean that he was kind of drained like a battery. No, Jesus knew that power had gone out and that a person had been healed. And I think that Jesus knew who that was. But the disciples are incredulous about this. I mean, what do you mean somebody touched you? Everybody's touching you. I mean, how could, how could somebody not touch you as they're fighting this way through this crowd and trying to, like, uh, security guards to move somebody through who's trying to get to a destination? But Jesus knew. And he called again, who touched me? Jesus called her out for her benefit. And trembling, she came forward and she fell at his feet. And she told why she had touched him and that she had been instantly healed. Why did Jesus call her out? Why did he want her to come and tell what had happened in her life? Well, it was, again, for her benefit. He wanted her to know that it was her faith that had brought healing and not some superstition. And it was her faith in God, her faith in his healing power that had brought her this blessing. And secondly, he wanted the people to know that she had been healed so that she could be welcomed back into the community. He wanted everyone to know what had happened so that this woman who had been suffering for 12 years and ostracized by her community and feeling all alone and helpless and desperate now could be welcomed back in that fellowship. And he calls her daughter. It's the only woman ever addressed in the Gospels in that way. He calls her daughter. It was for her benefit that he called her out to tell what had happened. And a timid faith became a testifying faith. That this woman, who had been maybe embarrassed to tell about her condition or to tell what had happened, now speaks before the crowd to testify of Jesus' power. Has God worked in your life? Has he done a miracle for you? Has he blessed you in ways that you have seen? Then don't be afraid to tell others what God has done for you. 
He can give you that boldness. He can use us to be a witness for Christ. And there are people who will relate to your story. God will bring them into your life. They're going to hear your testimony, and God will use that to be an encouragement to him. I love the song that's on that's called Chain Breaker. And I think about Jesus, who is a chain breaker, who can set people free from addictions or things that enslave them. He is a way maker. He's the one who can open up those doors that you thought were closed. He can provide what you need. Somebody testify. Somebody tell what God has done. And then consider Jairus in this passage. He is well known in the community. He is well respected by the people. He is the synagogue leader. And in those days, the synagogue leader was the person who made arrangement for the services, made arrangements for who was going to speak and share from the Word that morning, made arrangements for who was going to read the Scripture or lead a music or things like that. They put things together, and Jairus was known in that community. He's a man of faith, but right now his faith is being tested. His daughter is dying. And this is urgent. And can you imagine, Jairus, can you imagine what he is thinking here? I mean, first of all, he comes to Jesus, you know, and he's waiting for him to come across the lake, Jesus, come to the shore, and he meets him right away. And Jesus, you've got to come. My daughter is dying. My only daughter is dying. And then they have to fight their way through the crowd and now this has happened and here's this woman who has come and he doesn't begrudge that she has needs and she wants to see Jesus too and he's probably encouraged by the miracle that he has just witnessed how Jesus has healed this woman but come on, we, we got to get going. My daughter is dying. Jesus, don't you understand? And then someone comes and says, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And Jairus is crushed. I mean, all hope is gone. And then Jesus, seeing the look on his face, comes and says, don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. It was a call for faith. A call to Jairus to trust God with his circumstances. And I think of the emotional roller coaster that he was on. You know, just going up and down with each wave here. You know, where is Jesus? When's he going to come? And then Jesus agrees to come and he's up. And then this news that his daughter has died and he's down. He's, he's hopeless. And then Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. Just believe. And Jairus and Jesus would make their way back to his home. I think of Jairus' condition, and so it is with us, that there are times in our life when we're on that roller coaster and we're just up and down with every report we hear or with changing circumstances, and we feel like, God, where are you? Or what is happening here? And, and we have times and moments when we feel like, okay, I'm really trusting, I'm really believing. And then times when the news is bad and we're being tested and we just feel down and discouraged. God, where are you? And sometimes we wonder. 
And we wonder about God's providence and his arrangements of things and why he allowed this to happen in our life or why this went the way it did. You know, I think about, in my life, I think about a car accident I was in during college. And I shared this with you before, but I think about this Sunday morning in winter, in January, we're taking a team of students up from Moorhead to go up to Warren, my hometown, to share and preach and teach that morning. And just south of Crookston, I mean, a vivid memory for me. I'm seeing, you know, what looked like snowmobiles in the ditch, kicking up snow, and it's blowing back across the road. And that's, that's what I'm seeing. That's what everybody else saw. And so I'm just going to drive through this snow and, and uh, continue on. And when I get into the snow, it is not snowmobiles in the ditch. It is a snowplow. And I see the back warning lights now. And we go plowing into the back of that snowplow at 55 miles an hour. The car behind me wasn't able to stop either and hit our car, and then the third vehicle of van stopped. And by God's grace, four of us in my car were okay. One girl did break her ankle, but everybody else in the other vehicles was all okay. Some of us went to the hospital. Some of us continued on to do the services at the two churches that were planned. And I wondered, why, God? Why? And I would cross that place many times on my way home, that spot where the accident occurred, and I'm thinking, you know, just a little bit in front of that was this bridge. And 10 seconds, 10 seconds, that snowplow would have pulled up its blade. I would have seen it was a snowplow. I would have seen the lights. And nothing would have happened. Ten seconds, God. Why? Why did you allow that that morning? And then I think of a time when I was traveling with Americo Saavedra in Latin America. And we were driving. And we were in a car in the city, busy traffic, stopped at a light. And we're waiting for our turn to go. And we were in the front of the line at the crosswalk there, ready to go. The light turned green, we were going to pull ahead, and then an old man stepped in front of our car. And we had to wait. And as we waited for him to cross, a car went plowing through the intersection, just blew through that red light. And Americo said that man was an angel. I mean, if he hadn't stepped in front of that car at that moment, we would have pulled ahead and we could have been T-boned in that intersection. 10 seconds the other way. Things could have been very different. You know, and you just, you just don't know. All of us probably have those circumstances. We have the times where we've seen there's an accident or news that so we wonder, God, what's going on here in our life? And then those other times that are those close calls where you just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for watching over. God is in both situations. And he uses those situations in our life for his glory to teach us, to develop faith and trust in our life, to help us to see him at work in his providence. And on those circumstances where we sometimes just don't understand, God, why did you allow this? You know, we may not know till we get to heaven. And then we'll understand that God and his plan was working out all things for good. 
Well, the third thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is one powerful healer. Verses 51 to 56. You know, I think about how the text says that power went out from Jesus. It is intrinsic to his very being. Jesus has all power. He is omnipotent. He is God. There's no loss of power when he heals. He is all-powerful. And he is the Lord and giver of life. And what Luke wants us to see in this passage where he has put these four miracles together is that Jesus is Lord over the storms in nature. He has power over demons. They can do no more than he would allow, and they have to obey his commands. He is Lord over sickness, illness, disease, all those kind of things, and he is Lord over death. He has the power even to raise the dead. When he arrived at Jairus' house, he uh, brought Peter, James, and John with him into the house and the mother and father. He didn't want anyone else to see this miracle. It's interesting how this is different again. When he was in the area where it was Gentiles, he would tell the demoniac who had been healed to go and tell what God had done for you. Here, On the Jewish side, because of expectations about the Messiah, he didn't want to feed into that. Not yet. Not at this time would that revelation be made. And so he does this miracle with just a few to witness it, and he tells them, don't tell anyone about this. Not yet. Now is not the time. And so he goes into this room, and he did tell the mourners to stop wailing. She is only asleep. She is not dead. And they laughed at him. It was very common in those days for professional mourners, if you will, to come and to join with those who were family or friends. And they would come and they knew what death was. I know that she is dead. That's what they're thinking. Jesus, what are you saying? You haven't even been here. You haven't even seen the girl yet. She's dead. And Jesus tells them to stop wailing. She is only asleep. And Jesus entered that room, and he took her by the hand, and he said, My child, get up. And her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. It was a life-giving touch. It was a life-giving word from the one who is the Lord of life. You know, these miracles are so important to our faith because of what we believe about life after death. I mean, that's why these miracles are here, so that we might have confidence that Jesus does have power over death. And that day is going to come when we will die. All of us will die. But for the believer, it is like falling asleep. And Jesus will say to each of us, my child, arise. And that day is going to come when we will be in his presence and we will have our new glorified body. The dead will live again. The question that is asked in this section is, where is your faith? It goes back to what Jesus said to the disciples in chapter 8, verse 25, when they were caught in the midst of this storm. 
where is your faith? That's the question that Jesus asks of us. And Luke puts these miracles together, back to back to back, so we might see who Jesus is and grow in our trust in him. But not everyone has that faith, do they? In 2015, the New York Times reported that television commentator Larry King is obsessed with death. His day begins with reading obituaries and he ponders who's going to give the eulogy at his funeral. He smiles as he thinks it might be Bill Clinton and then his face becomes blank and he says, but I won't be there to see it. He's had a heart attack, quintuple bypass, prostate cancer, diabetes, and seven divorces. He was 77 years old when the television news station CNN dropped him. And when this happened, he really became aware that there is going to be a time when he will die. When he learned from the television of the death of Osama bin Laden, he jumped to his feet and he said, I got to be there. I, I need to be on the air. I need to report this story. I need to see the light. Come on. But he realized he had nowhere to go. So to move against aging and death, he takes hormone pills for human growth for them each day, and he plans on his body being frozen so that someday he will live again. He said to reporters, I know it's kind of nuts, but at least it gives him a shred of hope. Other people have no hope. That's what he thinks. I heard Pastor Stuart Briscoe this week talking on KTIS, and he was talking about people's fear of death, and he said people try to deny it, they try to defy it, and they try to delay it, but one day it will defeat you. I mean, people deny it. When they're young, they think they're immortal, invincible, death's not going to come, you know, and, and they, just, they just deny it. And people can do that even as they get older. And people try to defy it. People do all kinds of risky behavior or think it's not going to happen to them, and so they try to defy death in that way. And other people try to delay it, whether it is through cosmetic procedures or vitamins or having your body frozen or things like that, thinking that maybe that will put it off or I'll be able to somehow live again. But death's going to come. And unless you know and have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, whatever you're hoping in is a false hope. Where is your faith? Our faith is to be in Jesus, the Lord of life. The one who is Lord over nature. The one who is Lord over the spiritual realm. The one who is Lord over sickness. The one who is Lord over death. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful word this is. This passage speaks so clearly to Jesus' deity, his power, his authority. And God, I thank you that you have opened our eyes and opened our heart to see Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And if you are here today or if you're listening to this message online and you've never come to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, would you open your heart to him today and ask him to forgive your sins and to be your Savior and Lord? Jesus, thank you that you died and rose again. Thank you that you are alive today. You are even present with us.
Jesus, we put our hope and our confidence in you. And I pray that like that woman who was healed of her bleeding, that our timid faith would become a testifying faith and that we would tell others what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, today we uh, don't have a closing song. We're going to do something different in the summer and give our worship team a little break where we don't have our closing uh, hymn. And so I'd ask you to stand for our benediction as we close today. And now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.